안녕하세요. This is Kyle and Travis, and I'm really excited for today's episode because we're interviewing our first Blasian, if you can call it, Lee Quates, and she's an author who authored Faith and Favor, Discovering Family at 50, and she was also found in an earlier interview, uh, Wu Yi, and she's found in this book. So now there's a few different type of interviewers. I prefer to kind of learn as we go. So I think once we're done with the interview with Lee Quates, I think I will read through the book. But I kind of like the kind of learning, gathering information right on the spot. So thanks for joining us. And if you're really interested in our videos, please like, subscribe, and follow. So, hey, Lee, how are you doing today? I'm fantastic. How are you guys? We're doing pretty good. We really appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to be here. So I know we talked a little bit with Janice Garrod, and I know you told me a little bit about your story, and it was really intriguing to me because I believe you were adopted through Holt, correct? It was, yes. So I guess I wanted you to just introduce yourself, maybe your name, where you are located at, and... Uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about your childhood after that. Okay. Hello, everyone. My name is Lee Quates, and I'm a Korean adoptee who was adopted to the U.S. when I was two years old. And I was adopted to a military family. So when I was really young, we traveled around quite a bit. And then once my adoptive father reached retirement from the Air Force, then we settled in the Midwest. So that's pretty much where I grew up in the Midwest. Could you describe a little bit about your adoptive family? I believe you were adopted into a black family, correct? Yes, that's correct. So my adoptive family is black. So culturally, I grew up black. And my parents had two sons, two biological sons, and they wanted a daughter. The base chaplain had come to uh, some military personnel and said that there was an opportunity to adopt some South Korean children. And so that's when uh, my parents decided that they wanted to adopt. I think my mom had had a couple of miscarriages. And so since they had the opportunity to adopt a girl, they decided to go ahead and do that. That's great. So could you tell us a little bit about your childhood? Were you pretty well adjusted? Were you quiet or were you social? Could you describe a little bit about that, please? Yeah, I think I was pretty well adjusted. You know, I always knew that I was adopted. It wasn't any secret, but I didn't really talk about my adoption much growing up and within my family unit i was very well accepted as one of their own so i never experienced any kind of racism or anything within my family unit be it my immediate family or even my extended family so that was never an issue for me and i was just one of the family where i did experience racism was at school and you know in certain peer groups so that's kind of where it became tough. Did that occur when you were really young, like right away? And I assume they actually judge you for being black, not Asian. Is that correct? Well, I think a lot of people probably had that perception, especially since, you know, I was raised with a black family. But I will say that in early elementary school, kids did tease me for being Chinese in their eyes. I'm not Chinese, but, you know, to them, I was Chinese. So they would call me China girl and, you know, they would, you know, do their eyes like this. And so that always bothered me because when I looked in the mirror, I saw a little black girl. So I couldn't understand why they saw a China girl and I didn't like being called China girl. And so I, you know, must have presented Asian to them. It's kind of interesting. I think there's a lot of complexity, not just with adoptees, but being a mixed race. And I know there's a little bit of history with that. 
uh, in Korea, and I assume they were probably pretty racist back then. So you saw yourself more as black. You did not see yourself as Asian since you grew up in a black family. Is that how you saw it? Well, I wasn't exposed to any Asian culture. I didn't know any other Asians growing up. I didn't know any other adoptees growing up either. So I really had nothing to connect with or identify as far as, you know, with my Asian roots or my Asian culture. So yeah, there was a disconnect there. But I will say once I got to high school, I kind of really started to embrace my Asian side. And, you know, when you fill out forms and you have to choose what nationality you are or what race you are, I started to choose Black and Asian Pacific Islander because that's what I am. And so I didn't like having to choose one or the other because I'm both. Just going a little bit back again, uh, where did you say uh, you grew up? I know you moved around a lot. Could you describe kind of the locale? Was there a lot of mixed people or was it mainly white people or maybe black people? Could you describe a little bit about that? Yeah. So when I left Korea at the age of two, my dad was stationed in Okinawa. So we lived in Okinawa for a while and then he got orders to go to England. And so we lived on the Air Force Base in England. And so I actually went to kindergarten, first grade in England. And I think it was pretty diverse there. And then when I was in second grade, we moved to Virginia. And I can remember going to school there, but I can't necessarily remember how diverse it was or wasn't. Now, when I got to third grade, we had moved to Nebraska and it was where we lived was predominantly white. I think I was the only minority in the school. And that's the first time that I can remember experiencing racism. There was a little boy that called me a name and I talk about this in the book that I didn't necessarily know what it was, but I knew I didn't like it. And so when I told my teacher, they told the principal, then I think the student had some disciplinary actions against him because of that. So I think that's when I can remember it started. Um, So we lived and I went to school in that area of town probably for about a year. And then we moved to North Omaha where it was more diverse. And so then, you know, my close friend group, my inner circle primarily consisted of African-Americans. And so we still went to schools that were very diverse, but I think my close friends were predominantly black at that time. I think it's actually kind of interesting because I know in Wu Yi's book, and you kind of mentioned it, that kind of struck me is that you kind of believe that being black is actually a trauma, which is kind of a really interesting concept because me, I'm Asian and I guess there's some little bit of trauma with the Black Lives Matter. Do you feel like when you were born black, do you feel like there was a lot of trauma, not just from your adoption, but actually the color of your skin then? Yeah, absolutely. Because one thing that she asked me during that interview is, do I think I have experienced more trauma with being adopted or being an adoptee or being black? And when I go out in public and people look at me, they don't necessarily know that they are looking at an adoptee. But when they look at me, they will always see a person of color. So, yes, that makes it more challenging because, you know, there's biases that are kind of exerted towards us because of the way we look. And so that's more of an immediate threat to me than being an adoptee. 
How has the adoption experience kind of affected you? It sounds like since you were a child, rather than like shut down, you actually went to the higher ups and actually were confident enough to kind of put this guy into place. It sounds like maybe your, I don't know if your parents or upbringing kind of, or maybe you're just a strong person in general. I just kind of think that there's some people when they deal with that stuff, it kind of just goes internally and they don't say anything, but it sounds like you kind of attacked the problem, which probably helped you. And I assume you probably, when dealing with this kind of race stuff, you might've kind of continued to ask for help and be comfortable doing so. Yeah. So I just feel like, you know, I'm a survivor and I'm here for a reason, right? And I'm also a cup half full kind of person. And so, yes, there have been some horrific things that have happened to me in my past. I've lived through them and I've survived them. And, you know, I don't necessarily let what happens to me kind of define how the rest of my life is going to go. So, you know, I just take it. I learn from it or get from it, whatever, you know, I can and keep it moving. Um, so I know sometimes that's really hard to do. But, you know, there are some things that happen to us in our lives that it's just an extremely hard challenge to kind of move past. And I understand that because I've been there several times. But, you know, I think a lot of what helps me through is my faith. And so I know that there's a higher power, you know, something other than me that's getting me through life. And so that really helps me. What is your faith that you practice? What sect? So for the most part, I grew up in a Baptist church. So I've been a member of several Baptist churches. And that's kind of where my faith has been religion-wise. But I think... Now I'm kind of moving more towards spirituality versus religion. And, you know, yes, my parents introduced me to church and growing up, we didn't go to church every Sunday, but both of my parents are believers in Jesus and the Holy Trinity. And so, you know, they kind of instilled those values in us. And so my husband, he's a member of the Baptist church. And so, you know, we worshiped as a family together. And so that's been a really, really, really big part of my life. I'm very active in church and different ministries, you know, sang in the choir and served on boards and ministry leaders and some of those things. And so just very, very active and just active in my things that we've done for the community as well. So, but now it's like now my relationship with God, it's very much on a personal level. And that's where I get my guidance from. That's why I wrote Faith in Favor, just to give people hope. If God can do these things for me, then he can do them for you too, or, you know, do greater things. And so, you know, I was nobody special. I was an orphan. I was in, you know, an orphanage. I was at the bottom rung of society. And, you know, it was his decision to pull me out of that situation and say, you are going to grow up in this environment and you are going to get this education. And these are the people that I'm going to place in your lives. And this is your mission. This is your testimony. And this is the message that I want you to give to others. I remember you stated that through that process, I remember asking you, how has God affected your life? And it kind of brings to that story. You said that you were actually not the first pick from your adoptive parents right now. Correct. So my parents had been given some pictures of children who were in South Korea who were waiting to be adopted. 
and they had chosen a little girl who had a sibling and they wanted to keep the siblings together. And so they ended up getting adopted by another family. And so then they chose another little girl who was about six years old at the time. And she would have been the same age as my adoptive brother. It was their youngest son at the time. And so when they went to Korea to meet her, I guess the parents got to go to Korea to spend a day with the child that they had selected for adoption. So when my parents went, she knew who her mother was and she wanted her mother to come back to the orphanage to pick her up. And so she was holding out hope that, you know, my mom's coming back. I don't want to be adopted. So she didn't want to be adopted. So now my parents are there and the chaplain asked the adoption agency, you know, do you have any other children, any other girls who are ready for adoption? And so they checked with the orphanage and that's when the orphanage sent me to meet them. So, you know, my thing is, is that I wasn't my parents' first choice and I wasn't their second choice. I was God's choice for them. So God handpicked me on that orphanage and said, you're going to go with this family. So he had already planned this. I had nothing to do with the decision. My parents really didn't even have anything to do with the decision. So that's how I ended up there. So you described that you went through a lot of uh, traumas and challenges. Uh, Was there a point of your life where you lost faith in God or have you always had that faith in God? I would say I never lost faith in God because I have always known that he is the one who you know takes care of me and protects me. There have been times in my life where, you know, those deep moments where you're like, okay, like maybe I want the situation to be different. Right. And so in those times, those are the times that pull me closer to God because it's like, okay, here's the situation. Here's the circumstance. I can physically myself do nothing about it other than pray. And so it's during those difficult and challenging times where I cling on even tighter to my faith. And that's pulled me through. And it's not always an immediate You know, sometimes in our lives, we've got mountain highs and we've got valley lows and it's, you know, we're going to have those valleys. It's just like, you know, it rains and it storms, but then once that all clears out and the sunshine comes out, then you've got pretty flowers and green grass. And, you know, same thing in our lives when we go through storms and challenges and when we are deep in the valley. It's like, it's not about being in the valley or being in that storm. It's what do you do while you're there? And, you know, what are you learning? How are you growing so that once that storm passes or once you come out of that valley, how are you different as a person? How's your perspective on life and for others? How is it different? What's your new mission? What's your new goal? So those are the times where I really cling tightly and I would say, no, I've never, ever lost any kind of faith. And I can't even say that I've really ever been angry at God. I've been angry at situations that I find myself in. But to me, that's not God's fault. You know, it's because of decisions that I've made. Or maybe it's because of decisions that someone else made. And that has affected me negatively. So that's how I like to look at it. 
one thing that's kind of interesting that kind of ties in. Uh, I wanted to ask you, so you were actually kind of adopted a little late. Do you remember anything about the orphanage or is it kind of all a blur still? Right. I do not remember the orphanage at all. I was two when I went and I was only there for a couple of months. Well, I was probably there for about six months for all the paperwork and stuff to go through. Less than a year for sure. But I don't remember anything about it. My mom told me that I was speaking Korean when they first adopted me, um, but I learned English pretty quickly. So I actually took a trip back to Korea in 2019, and that's the very first time that I had been there since my adoption. And I got to visit the whole adoption agency. I got to visit the Ilsan Orphanage where I was. And, you know, it's changed. Some of the buildings that were there when I was adopted aren't there anymore. But they have pictures. And it was just very interesting to see those pictures, to know that, okay, this is what it looked like when I was there in, you know, 1969. So, but I didn't remember any of it. I didn't remember anything about Korea. What kind of got you into wanting to go back to Korea? I assume that you're trying to find your roots. Could you explain a little bit? Uh, when did you actually first get into the Korean culture? So I wanted to go back to Korea because I'm looking for my birth mother. You know, I figure, okay, right now I'm 53 and I'm not getting any younger. My birth mother's not getting any younger. So if I have any hope to, to meet her at all, then I need to do it sooner than later. And so that's really why I wanted to go back. And I found out about Goal's first trip home program. And I thought it sounded really interesting. You know, prior to that, going to Korea had never really been on my radar. Um, I love to travel. I've traveled to, you know, all different places. And it never really ever dawned on me to try to go to Korea. And I just really didn't have a connection there. And I had tried Korean food, but I didn't like it. It's, it's the Midwest version of Korean food. So, you know, I just didn't really have that big of an interest. So you would say till 53, you probably denied the Korean culture. No, I didn't really. I mean, so I started looking for my mom. Like I really had a burning desire to kind of meet my mom in uh, 2015. So that's kind of when I thought, man, really cool if I could meet my mom. But prior to that, you know, I'd always been curious about Korean culture, but again, not knowing anyone who had any experience or anything with the culture. I, I didn't really know who to ask or what to do. I mean, yeah, I can search on the internet, but you know, I just didn't really take the time. I mean, I was married and working and raising two girls and they had activities and stuff. So it's just my life was kind of focused on them and family and stuff like that and not really any of my personal goals as far as finding out about my birth family. So by 2015, my kids were, well, one was in college and one was in high school and I had more time for myself. And so that's when I decided, well, let's try a search. And so I didn't really consider making a trip to Korea until Goal had recommended that I do an active research because everything that they had tried up until that point really didn't open any doors or anything. So that's why. So you tried searching in 2015 or did that actually happen when you connected with Goal in 2019? Well, I reached out. So I think the thing that kind of really ignited a spark was I saw, it might have been on CNN, a story about twins who found each other. They'd been separated at birth and one 
lived in Europe and one lived in the U.S. And so, you know, then I kind of got to thinking, I'm like, man, what if I had a twin? (laughs) You know, I mean, it'd kind of be like you guys, if you were separated at birth, right? You didn't know about each other. So I thought that might be kind of cool. So I reached out to, I just sent a message to the organization that was, I think one of those twins that started an organization. And so I kind of reached out to her. And so she's the one who, you know, kind of gave me some recommendation. And, you know, the first one is start with your adoption agency in your adoptive country. I'm trying to remember what were those two girls name? I think I know what you're talking about. It was Kindred Adoptions is the organization. So like one of the twins is an actress. Yep. I know who you're talking about. I'm just trying to remember the name. Yeah, so I, I can't remember their names either. And you said you reached actually out to them? I sent an email to Kindred Adoption. But I don't know if that organization is still operational. I mean, again, this was, you know, several years ago. So I'm not sure if they're still active. But so, you know, I just kind of took that information. I reached out to Holt. Holt responded back and said that they could not confirm that they facilitated my adoption. And... So then I was just kind of stuck. I'm like, okay, well, now I don't know what to do. And then I received my adoption paperwork from my parents and it said Holt on it. And so I'm like, well, this says Holt, but Holt says that they didn't facilitate my adoption. So then I went back to Holt's webpage and this is like three years later. So now this is in 2018. And by that time they had where you could on their site initiate a formal birth family search. And so that's what I did. And I requested my file, all the papers in my child file. And even though I had the adoption paperwork that my parents had given me, and I thought, you know, while I was doing it, I kind of thought to myself, well, I don't really need my adoption paperwork because I have it here. My adoptive parents have it and they've given it to me. But I thought, well, I'll just request it anyway. And I'm really glad I did because they provided me with two reports that were not included in the paperwork that my parents had. And one of those reports was an intake report. And because I didn't know how I got to the orphanage, I didn't know who dropped me off, but this intake report had given me information that I was dropped off by my mother. It had her name on it. It even had my biological father's name on it. And it had information about my mother's family. So you know, how her mother had died when she was three and her father was kidnapped to North Korea during the war. And she had a brother and a sister. They were both married at the time. So she had lived with her brother and sister for a while, but then she ran away from home at 16. And by the time my father met her, she was living um, in a village near the DMZ called Nulnori. And so, you know, all of that information was not in the adoption paperwork that my parents had. And so that was huge for me. So I'm like, oh my gosh, like, why did we not have this information? And so that was a lot of great information that I didn't have before. And so I was really glad that I initiated that formal birth family search. So then they told me to contact Holt Korea and get my paperwork there because sometimes there's more information from there. And so I did, but you know, it turns out that there wasn't any more information. So now I have the adoption paperwork from Holt Korea, which is a separate organization from Holt International. Was Holt International, is that in America then? Or? It is, yep. Okay. 
So it connects from Holt International and it goes Holt Korea, I see. Correct, yes. And so I think they started out as the same organization, but then they split off. It was something with the Korean government, I think. So now they're like two separate organizations. And so I got the information from both of them. But now that I have this information, I still don't really know what to do, right? I mean, I don't know how to initiate a search. So I think whole Korea worked with Kaz to do a search on my mom's name and birth date, and it came back unsearchable. So it didn't come back that she was deceased. It just came back that it was unsearchable. What is CAS? I don't know what that is. Okay, so now it's in CRC, but CAS was the Korean Adoption Services. And so basically what that meant was that my mom had not registered with the Korean government, but you can still work and receive mail and all that, even if you're not registered with the Korean government, even though everyone's supposed to be. So I guess after getting that information that it came back unsearchable, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, at least it didn't come back deceased. So I'm thinking maybe she's still alive, right? And so then Holt gave me some other avenues that I could try, like, you know, going through a goal or trying to get a story in either one of the Korean media outlets or something like that. So that's when I decided, okay, well, I reached out to Goal. They took on my case and I think they submitted it to the police department and then it didn't come back with anything. So that's when they were saying probably the best thing would be to do an active search when you're here in Korea. So that's how I arrived. And that's when you went to Korea, correct? And you did the search. Could you describe a little bit about that? Right. So Goal arranged for volunteers and translators to accompany us to the adoption agency or the foster home or the baby home, wherever you were, to the orphanage. We also went to the police station to do a DNA test to get into the National Missing Children's Database. And then I think we also did one other DNA test, maybe with Dow Gene. And then they would take you to the last known place where either your family members or where you lived with family. So that's when I went to the village where I lived with my mom with the translator to talk to the residents there. Could you describe that experience? I know that you tried to search. I think you went inside the hospitals. Could you describe a little bit more about the specific of what happened? Could you remind me, what city were you born in again? No Nori. No Nori. Okay. So the translator and I traveled there via public transportation. So we took the train and then we took a cab to the village. And Goal had made up some flyers. So it had my picture, it had my story. And they told us to kind of put those up around town. And so we decided that we were going to talk to anyone who would have been in my mother's generation. So we figured my mother is in her 70s. And Nolnore is one of those villages where if you're born into the village, you're probably going to stay there or, you know, like there's not a lot of people who would move into the village. There's just not a lot there. But, you know, you may be fortunate enough to move out. But if you're in your 60s, 70s there, you've probably been there all your life. And so we decided we were going to talk to everybody who would be in my mother's generation. And so when we first got into town, we found a real estate agent and we were thinking, oh, this is perfect. 
because we found out that he had lived there since 1958. And so I'm like, okay, then he was here when my mom was here in the late 60s. So I had pictures. So I should back up just a little bit. I did end up meeting my biological dad and he had pictures of my mom. Sorry to cut you off. So how did you meet your biological dad? I mean, you could describe that since that happened before I'm mean, trying to find your mom. So in December of 2017, I took three DNA tests. I did Ancestry.com, 23andMe, and MyHeritage. And Ancestry.com returned a match on my brother. So I wasn't necessarily doing it to find anybody on my paternal father's side because I had no idea if... My father even knew I existed or if my mom even knew who my, who my father was. So I never really thought about meeting my dad. I, I was just kind of focused on finding mom. But, you know, I, I did 23 me for the health history report since, you know, as adoptees, we don't know our health history. So that was my motivation for doing 23 me. And then I did three of them just because I was kind of skeptical. You know, like I'd always been told that I was black and Korean. I just wanted to know for sure. And so that's why I did it. And I did three of them just to see how close the results would be. You know, if one would say one thing. And so that's why I did those. How are the results? I'm actually kind of curious. Were they pretty accurate between each other then? or? Well, they all said that I was black and Asian, but there's different percentages and there's different breakdowns. So 23andMe was probably the most detailed, but they all agreed that um, I was Asian and Black. I know what it can pinpoint being an Asian, like the Pacific City. For 23andMe, did it actually pinpoint like your African heritage at all, the actual country at all? or? Yeah, it did. And I do list that in my book too. I have the breakdown between each test and the percentages where it placed me. Because I thought that kind of interesting. So yes, it is in there. And so Ancestry.com returns a match on my brother, but it doesn't say that it's a brother. It's, you know, close family, first cousin. And so I reach out to him, he responds. And so that's how I end up meeting my father's side. And that is detailed in the book. And so when I go to Korea, I've already met my biological father and I've already met my siblings. And so the first time I meet my biological father, I have, he's given me pictures. And so I take those pictures to Korea with me to the village where I was born, hoping that, you know, someone would remember. And so with the first gentleman being a real estate agent and the town is so small, it's like, I'm pretty sure he knows every building, every home, and probably every resident that's in this village, right? It's walkable, you'd say. Oh, for sure. We walked the residential area like three times and, you know, just walking up and down the street. There was probably at most maybe 60 homes in, you know, in the residential area. And so, you know, the first guy, he knew a lot more information than he would tell us. And he, you know, just kind of kept saying, why didn't she get this information from the adoption agency? And he said the women who gave their children up for adoption didn't use their real name. So the name that was on the adoption paperwork was very highly likely. That wasn't, you know, my mom's actual name. So, but, you know, he didn't give us any other information that could be helpful. Was there a reason why it did that have to do with racism or he just didn't want to take the time to help you search? I'm 
certain it had to do with racism because everybody that we showed the picture of my mom and dad together, because my dad is actually from Barbados. And so every time someone saw that picture, they were quite hostile. And so I kept telling the interpreter, I'm like, okay, you've got to stop showing people the picture of my mom and dad because it's not helping. Like it's making it worse. But they have no compassion and no incentive to help me find her. And so I talk about the experience in the book in that this is what happened. This is what I experienced. But what I don't do is reflect on internally kind of how that made me feel, what I was thinking about it. That's what I like to actually know about. So I'm kind of glad that we can actually talk about it. I'm sure it's really complex and it must have been pretty disappointing, I think. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. It was disappointing. And, you know, one comment that the interpreter made was like, oh my gosh, like, what is wrong with these people? Like, they are stuck in the 1950s. And so he'd never experienced firsthand, like, racism to that level. And, you know, my thing is, is that, well, you know, this is not the first time I've experienced racism. It won't be the last time. So I honestly could not even get emotional about it while I was there. In the back of my mind, I think I kind of, I'm not going to say expected it, but I knew that there was a potential of that happening. So it wasn't something that shocked me at the time. I can't even say that I was angry. I was extremely disappointed for sure and very sad about it. But it's like, because, you know, this is reality. I'm a living, breathing reminder of a very savage war. And, you know, I get it. I understand it. Don't agree with it. But, you know, it's, it's just how it is. Did you ever thought about like going to each house? Like I know it would probably take you a few days. Have you ever thought about going back? Do you believe that she probably is in that village at all? Or, or what's your intuition about that? Yeah, my intuition says that I feel like she's not living anymore. And I don't feel the need to ever go back to Nolnorie and try to search for her again. Unless there's a lead, you know, that, hey, because... You know, NCRC still has my case. So if they come back and say, hey, we've identified someone who we think might be your mom or who might be a relative, then that's when I would go back. But no, you know, we posted my flyer on bus stops. We posted it on the bridge. We posted, we taped them up to different things. So, oh, in like in the residential areas, we, we taped them up to um, like light poles and you must have been in Korea for a while to actually take your time to go there. How long were you actually there? Mm-hmm. It was about a 10-day trip. Holy cow, you did all that in 10 days. That's actually pretty fast, actually. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Is it, I mean, yeah, we hit the ground running. And that was one thing that was really difficult about the trip is Seoul is just so bustling with traffic and just signs, like neon signs everywhere. And just people and we weren't getting a lot of sleep. And prior to me going to Korea, I didn't really grow up dwelling on being adopted because again, I was accepted into my family. I was one of them and I never talked about adoption. Before I wrote the book, there were so many friends or people that I knew had no idea I was adopted. Wow, really? 
They thought you were just their black kid then or something like that, or your dad? Yeah. That's interesting. They had no idea. And so it wasn't something that I really thought about, talked about, or anything. But now that I was in Korea, that was the only thing I could think about. So it was always, you know, right here at the front of my brain. Like, and that was a lot to deal with. And it was very overwhelming. It was very emotional. I was there with other adoptees who were on their own search. So we're helping each other through these emotions. And it was a lot. What was your overall experience of the trip then? Was it more positive, negative, maybe a mixed bag? What is your overall feeling and your experience when you went back? My overall feeling is that it was a positive for me. It was a positive in that that's the first time that I really met other adult adoptees because prior to that I had met one and it was the year before. So I was very new to the adoptee community, but being there with other adult adoptees, it was fun to get to know them because they were international. They were from Europe and other places across the United States. So that was kind of cool to connect with them and bond with them. And so it really just let me know like how great the need is in the adoptee community. And so when I came back, that's when I kind of started looking for volunteer opportunities within the adoptee community. So, I mean, it was a positive experience for me. So my curiosity, as you said, you travel with other adoptees, were any of them mixed too or Blasian or, so you did meet a few of those. Well, there was one other, I think, on that particular trip, she was half white and half Korean. But on that particular trip, there was no other half black, half Korean. I think it's really interesting that I think adoption seems to affect, well, I guess it's like half and half, but there seem to be a lot of people that think the adoption affected their upbringing. But it's kind of interesting with you, the racing actually seemed to, you being black seemed to affect you more and gave you more issues and actually adoption experiences. I think that's really interesting. I'm wondering if more ablations kind of have similar experiences. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, I can't really answer that because I haven't really had a lot of communication with other Black and Korean adoptees. I'm friends with a few of them on social media, but have never met them. And so I can't really speak to their experience. I can just say this is what my experience was. Do you feel like maybe your identity is still a little bit different than these other, you know, full Korean adoptees? Do you feel that your identity is still more with the mixed Blasian? Do you feel that since you're that particular identity, do you feel that you have a hard time relating to people that are full Korean adoptees or... Or do you actually make assimilation to them? Or what's your take on that? Well, so since I've kind of come into the adoptee community, I can understand the emotions and feelings and the situations that they have found themselves in. And so just because I'm not 100% Korean, I'm still 100% an adoptee. So I still relate to those in the community that are 100% Korean. Could you describe a little bit about your father? I know we kind of skimmed it. Where was he? And you said you found him on Ancestry, correct? If, if I remember right. Well, I matched with my brother, who is his son. So yeah, so he's the one who introduced me to our father. So our father was in the army and was stationed in Nolnori for a year. So he actually had a relationship with my mother and he knew that she was pregnant when he got orders to go to Okinawa. 
So he said the army would not allow him to marry her and take her with him. So he said he didn't have a choice that he had to use in the military. And I think Korea was his, his first stop out of basic training. I think that's actually an interesting fact that you said, because I guess there's some people that have this assumption that where the fathers just like basically have a relationship and they kind of leave. But in the end, it sounds like since a lot of them were military and the mixed blood, it sounds like it was actually more of the military uh, causing these separations between the father and mother, basically. And I think it kind of depends on the branch of military that you were in, because while the army didn't necessarily allow it, my adoptive father said that that wasn't necessarily the case with the Air Force. But you have to go back and think about the time frame, too, because this was 1966 and interracial marriage did not become legal in the United States until 1967. So there were states that had laws on the books that forbid interracial marriages. So it wasn't lawful to do so. And so maybe the army was kind of taking that stance. So part of our issue was that just laws in the United States and not even laws, just kind of society, like society didn't like it either. Right. And so not only in Korea, but in the U.S., they didn't like interracial couples. And so that added a little bit of another layer of complexity. So I just wanted to make things clear. Your father was in the United States now. Is that where you met him? Yeah, he was actually in the United States. How did that reunion go for you? Maybe you could describe a little bit about it. Yeah, I go into detail about it in the book. And it was a great reunion, actually. I'm very emotional. And it was nice because then I got to learn about so much of my heritage about, you know, my father's side of the family and how and where he grew up. And then, you know, about what he knew about my mom and her family. So he got to tell me things about, you know, her personality. And, and like I said, he had pictures and he knew exactly where those pictures were. He showed them to me. He gave me the originals. So, you know, that was priceless as well. So I was very thankful for that. And it was totally unexpected. I think the fact that you actually did meet one of your parents that probably helped you a little bit, although the Korea one was disappointing. At least you still found one of the sides. So I'm kind of curious, maybe that kind of gave you a little bit of peace that you kind of found at least part of the missing piece of the puzzle, let alone he did describe how your mom was like and stuff like that. Right. So Yes, that did bring a lot of peace because now I have a connection with siblings that I didn't know I had. I grew up with two brothers and always wanted a sister. And then I found out now I have like four sisters, actually. That was super exciting. And I grew up the youngest of three. And then I found out I'm the oldest of eight. And so it's like, oh, okay, how does that work? I assume your father remarried and had another family with some other lady. Are you familiar with that? Are you close with them? Or what's the experience when you first met them? Or if at all you met them? Yes. So I've met all my siblings. I've met all their moms. Our dad has actually been married four times. He's currently married. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a very blended family. And we've all met and we all get along great. So that has really been a blessing. And not only for me, but for my family too, because now my daughters have aunts and uncles and cousins that they have established relationships with. And that's been pretty cool to see too. So kind of like you got your own bigger family, which is 
the blessing I could see. So out of curiosity, before you actually met your dad, were you experiencing anxiety, fears of rejection again, or abandonment or rejection that a lot of adoptees experience? You were still hopeful in the end, or what was your take on that before you actually met him? Yeah, I did not really experience any kind of those issues, like didn't really have anxiety. I never really thought about rejection or it just happened so fast and I was shocked and like all of a sudden it's just like oh my gosh <laughs> and so I know there's a lot of adoptees that struggle with identity and where they're from but I feel like you seem whether it was your faith in God or positive experiences it's really intriguing to me that you seem to have a really stable identity you seem to know yourself quite well it sounds like throughout your childhood and maybe throughout your adulthood Yeah, I would say I'm pretty well adjusted. And, you know, again, I think part of it is due to me not focusing on bad things that have happened to me in the past. Because, you know, honestly, it's not about what happens to you. It's how you react to what happens to you. And so there's always going to be horrible, not appealing things that happen, but it's just how you react and move forward. You know, there's a lot of people stuck in the past. How do you develop the mindset to be positive? Did you have mentors growing up or was it just something that maybe you're just really intelligent and knew that was the right thing to do? Or maybe your upbringing too, that you had a positive upbringing with your parents, possibly your adoptive family, maybe? Yeah, I think God has put some very positive people in my life and just plus with the church upbringing too. And you think about Jesus and all that he went through. I mean, he had struggles and he suffered quite a bit while here on earth. And that was one thing that my mom always used to tell me because, you know, I'd go home crying because the kids are either making fun of me or they're talking about me. And she'd say, well, they talked about Jesus. So what makes you better than him? And I'm like, well, you have a point there. So I just think that how do you get past what has happened to you in the past. My thing is, you cannot change it. What happened to you, happened to you. And there's nothing that you can physically do to change it. But you do have some control over how you move forward. So you just have to learn to accept what you can and can't change. And that's difficult. I'm not saying that it's easy. It is difficult because sometimes we don't want to accept it. Sometimes it hurts too bad. Sometimes you try to get over things and it's just too painful. It's raw and it's deep. And I get that. Like I've experienced that. I don't talk a lot about it in the book. There's some situations that you will read about that I think you'll feel it. I may not specifically state it, (laughs) but you'll feel it. And so if it's something that I can't do anything about, why should I dwell on it? You know, our time here on this earth is so short. And so it's just like, okay, so either I can live my life miserable because I'm mad about what happened, or I can choose to move forward and try to make whatever I can make better, better and just enjoy life because God wants us to be happy. He doesn't want us to be sad. And yes, there are times when we will be sad or mad or unhappy or, but again, just like storms, they're short lived. So for other adoptees that maybe experience the feelings of abandonment, rejection, or racism, you kind of hit the head on the nail. I think maybe what I've kind of already alluded to is the fact that you don't have control of other people's reactions, but you can control on how you respond to it. Do you believe that's really good advice for other people that might be struggling right now as adoptees, whether 
their Blasian or Hapa or just full Koreans to believe that's a good philosophy. Yes, I do. That's exactly it. You know, we can't control other people. So like, you know, we couldn't control what our parents were going through at the time when we were born. We don't know the circumstance and we don't know the situations that they found themselves in, like when we were born or when we were relinquished or whatever. And we're not here to judge them either. You know, that's not our job. It's not our job to judge them. So whatever life decisions they made are exactly that. That's their life decisions. So the life decisions that we make are our life decisions. So some people choose to make life decisions that make their life harder and it continues to be miserable. And some people choose to make life decisions that maybe are a little more positive. And so we cannot control like you said, traps other people. Is that your opinion with the politics today? I think you're probably the staple of kind of the things that were happening. One, you're a woman, an Asian woman, and a black woman, and with the Black Lives Matter. I was curious, what is your opinion or maybe advice on dealing with the, I guess, the bigots or the racist people out there? What is your thought process when you came across it? If you could offer some advice with that. I would just say, you know, Michelle Obama once said, when they go low, we stay high. That's kind of the same thing. Like always still be respectful and always just kind of maintain your composure and just know that there are going to be people who are not going to like you for whatever reason. And you can't change that, right? But you always maintain that level of, like in the business world, you always maintain that level of professionalism, right? So just stay true to your character and just make sure that your character is like up here, not down there. How has the experiences where you lived, have you experienced like racism recently? And do you feel afraid going out? Right. So in the city where I lived during the Black Lives Matter protests last summer, there was a lot of clashes in our city with citizens and law enforcement, and which was very unfortunate. So I personally didn't partake in any of the marches or anything. I find that interesting. Is there a reason why did you not feel safe or did you not find yourself attached to it or? It wasn't that, number one, it was during a pandemic, you know, and people are out there gathered in crowds. And sometimes if the crowd didn't disperse by the time the curfew hit, then that's when law enforcement would kind of be a little more aggressive. And so it's just kind of crazy. And I just chose personally not to be there, but it's definitely knowing that when I leave the house or when my husband leaves the house or when my daughters leave the house, just knowing that people see us as persons of color and that we could be physically harmed just because we're, I mean, these people don't know us. They don't know our personalities. They don't know what we do for a living. They don't know how we interact with And to them, it doesn't matter. And so that's disheartening for sure. And I'm not going to say that I personally experienced anything that made me think that my personal safety was in danger during those times. But I'm sure a lot of people who were actually attacked, you know, someone runs across the street and like attacks them or pushes them down from behind or like, you never know when it's going to be you. And so that part is, yeah, you're a little cautious. 
you're definitely a little cautious. You know, you're aware of your surroundings, but, you know, just a little heightened for personal safety reasons, for sure. You know, you seem to hold a lot of composure regarding these really intense issues that seem to be very political. I'm curious, does racism ever make you, like, so deep-seated angry that you want to do something about it? Like, you're just so mad at these people, you want to get something done? Because there's people like that. Do you feel that's helpful for someone that just gets so riled up on it? Do you feel it's helpful to get out and, I don't know, I don't want to say fight violence with violence, but what is your take on that, on what people really should be doing? The political atmosphere is really intense. Not only are black people getting violated, but there's Asian people that are getting abused and violence is thrown against them as well so i'm curious i don't want you to speak for the whole black community or the whole asian community to me i guess it's really hard for me to get so riled up on something that would just make me more upset and that's the reason why i don't step into those issues but for you do you feel the same way or you feel there's other people that should probably handle it Mm -hmm. So becoming passionate about a cause is it's a very personal thing. And the closer that is to you, the more passionate you become, right? Because it affects you. It affects your family. But if you think about it in your daily dealings with people, so whether it's a family member or someone you don't know, so let's say it's someone you don't know, think about how you would react to them if they came upon you and they were just screaming at you and you're like, what the heck is going on? Like, I have no idea what's happening right now. And they're just going at you, like just for whatever reason, think about your reaction. You know, are you going to go right back at them? Like, well, what do you mean? You're, you know, I don't know you. What do you do? You know? And so now there's very aggressive behavior between the two. So think about that. And then think about, okay, if something happened and now someone's coming to you and saying, I'm sorry, Travis, but this happened and that happened. And I feel like this, you know, and so you guys are talking through it. There's a way to handle certain situations. And sometimes you don't really know how to handle it until you're in the situation. So there have been times where things have happened and normally I am very laid back and, you know, kind of takes a lot to kind of push me to the point where I'm super angry. But once I get there, (laughs) I'm angry. And so it really kind of depends on the situation. But it's really tricky because it requires a balance. You want people to hear your message, but then you don't want to become too strong. Otherwise, one, they're not going to listen or they're going to fight back. So it's really tricky, even though there are racial disparities. It's very difficult keeping composure. But I guess I think maybe your personnel would be perfect for it because you probably could maintain your composure. That's what I can gather. Yeah. And sometimes it is challenging depending upon the situation and who you're kind of interacting with, because some people, they don't want to listen to what you're saying. I don't care how you say it. You could say it really nice. You could scream it. They don't care because they've got their own thoughts about whatever the situation is. So you're not going to get through to everybody, but there's a way to do it. And there's a way to do it in each situation. I'm very certain you probably don't have a extreme hate for the police, do you? Or Well, my husband was a police officer for 21 and a half years, so we've lived that life too. I can see both sides. That's probably the best way to talk about issues because you know both sides. Exactly. Yeah, I see both sides. And with him being a police officer for all those years, he sees both sides too. I mean, he's a black male. Like, you know, that could be him if he's out taking a run or whatever. They don't know that he used to be a police officer and they could do the same thing to him. So 
he understands it. He sees it from both sides. But we definitely need police because if there were no law enforcement and people could do whatever the heck they wanted to do, there'll be anarchy. It would be chaos. And so, you know, it's just like we still need law enforcement, but we need law enforcement to treat everybody equally, to treat everybody like we're all humans and that we have the same rights. So don't profile us. Don't make us guilty before we're even charged with anything. Don't just assume. So that's the thing, you know, it's the mentality that needs to change. But I mean, we still need law enforcement. Since you're really faithful and you're really faith-based, my question to you is like, I feel like God doesn't judge. He doesn't make judgments. But what is your take on why humans are so judgmental regarding racism, for instance, and identity? What is your take on that? Why are humans like that when it's not under God's condition to be like this? Is it the devil, you think, or some evil that's associated with it? Or what's your opinion on that matter? Yeah, so personally, I think part of it is, you know, we're humans. We are born in sin. We are not perfect. No one is perfect, right? And so back when Adam and Eve ate of the tree, then that's when that type of nature entered into human beings. And so part of what we're dealing with is just human nature. And you think about little kids and sometimes how little kids can be so mean and you have to teach them not to be mean. (laughs) So if you have to teach somebody not to do something, then that means it's innate behavior. And so sometimes it's a little more work to be nice. Sometimes for some people, it's really easy to be mean. And so they just kind of take the path of least resistance. So you think about how much work it is to be nice to someone who doesn't like you or who doesn't treat you like you're an equal. That takes some work. And I think some people just naturally think that they're better than others for whatever reason. And so that's kind of what we're dealing with. We're talking some like some pretty hardcore issues and you seem to have a lot of great composure. We come a lot of people where they like break down on like identity issues, abandonment, you know, another touch is racism. Is there moments where you break down and cry or are those just more private or you just feel like you're at a point where you let all that on the table? Do you actually cry when you actually reunited with your father? I did. Yes. You know, very emotional because I had gone my whole entire life kind of wondering what they looked like. And then so to actually hear his voice in person, that was very emotional for me. I think it was very healing. That's kind of why we started these interviews, because I mean, like you and my brother and I and a few others had good adoption reunion stories, but there's quite a bit of them that didn't. So I was kind of curious, how does someone move on from that? It's a really painful thing to process and... I hope that we can get more people talking about it. Maybe it could kind of heal and help people in a way a little bit. Right. And I do get that. You know, I was very fortunate with my reunion story and that I wasn't shunned or ignored or anything like that. But then again, I haven't met my mother's side of the family either. So I have no idea. It could still happen. I could connect with someone or even her and maybe she's moved on with her life. You know, my thing is, I think she's at peace with the choices that she made, right? And so I don't know if she has another family now. I don't know if she ever thinks about me or if she would ever want to reconnect with me. I have no idea. What about your dad, though? You didn't mention that maybe, did he think about you growing up? He obviously knew that your mom was pregnant with you. Did he ever tell you that, hey, I, 
I think about you. And what was your reaction to that if he did? I assume he would have said something along those lines. Right. So it turns out that my mom and my dad's mom had corresponded a couple of times, like maybe three, four times. They had written letters to each other. Oh, you mean after they kind of split, right? Correct. And so my mom had sent pictures. So that's how my dad had pictures of my mom and I. And I think he had brought back some pictures of them together. And so in December of 2016, one of my sisters, who she lives in Germany because her mother's German, she's German. She was in the States visiting our dad and a couple of our other siblings were there. And the brother who who everyone thought was the oldest at the time, you know, our sister said, oh, it's finally nice to meet the oldest of the siblings. And she said, that's when our father told them about me. And he said, well, actually, you have an older Korean sister. And she said he got emotional because he said, but I don't know what happened to her and I don't know if she survived because he had lost touch with my mom. That just proves he actually did think about you and actually kind of cared a little bit and that you weren't ever really forgotten. That's actually amazing. That's Yeah. So all of my siblings found out that I existed the year before the DNA test happened. So it was like when I reached out to my brother and said, hey, you know, I'm looking for my family. And all I know is that my dad was African-American and was in the military in Korea in 66 or 67. Does that sound like anyone in your family? And he was like, well, my father was served in the military and he was in Asia in the late 60s and had a relationship with an Asian woman. And, you know, what, what is your mom's name? And I didn't know the name of either parent. And so that's kind of how that discussion started. And so what him and his wife were thinking, though, at the time when they got my first message was like, oh, my gosh, it's her. Like, it's the sister we found out about last year. <laughs> and so that, you know, it was the timing of that was super crazy. So since you know what both of your parents look like, did you get your good looks from your dad or your mom? <laughs> <laughs> I hate to say it, you look really, really young for old. Yeah, I was going to tell you, you do not look like in your 30s yeah. or 40s, to be honest. Right. Thank you so much. You know, I actually, so my aunt, who is also Barbadian, she looks very young. Like, she's in her 60s, no wrinkles. So maybe that youthful appearance came from both sides of the family, so. <laughs> so I guess we'll kind of wrap it up. We're getting pretty close. I kind of want to ask a little bit more about the process of your book. So I noticed that you've written this in 2020. And was this written during the COVID time then? Or or did you written this before? Yeah, actually, I started writing that in July of 2018. And it was a long process. It took me over two years. I self-published. So actually, the pandemic just kind of helped me, you know, get over that hump. And because all of the activity. I've always been extremely active. So, you know, I work a full-time job and then I had uh, all kinds of activities going on in the evening. What do you do as your job? Are you a, a writer? Or? No, actually I work in IT. I'm a technology. Oh, information technology. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, now that the world is shut down and I have nothing to do in the evening and the gyms are closed and my volleyball league is canceled and all of that, I had more time in the evening to kind of focus on finishing. And so that's how I used my COVID time to finish. Was there certain parts of the book where you 
after reflecting, did you end up getting teary-eyed at all when reflecting about your past? Or was it difficult writing it, or did it just kind of flow? Or was it cathartic, maybe? No, it was extremely difficult. It was extremely difficult for multiple reasons. So one of the first reasons is I don't sit still for very long. And, you know, I'm always on the move. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. That seems so opposite from your personality for being so calm, actually. That's kind of interesting to me. <laughs> no, I'm always on the go doing something. I have a million things on my plate at any given time. And sitting there in one spot writing for that long by yourself. I mean, that's difficult. Another thing is I'm a very private person. So I don't talk a lot about private issues or what's bothering me or whatever. And so now that I'm writing, I'm having to really think about, okay, how did this make me feel? What was I thinking during this? And that was difficult because at first I thought, oh, writing a memoir, is going to be easy because I just write what happened. I mean, it's a true story. I write what happened. Oh my gosh, it was so hard. Yes, you have to write what happened, but I write it in the form of a novel. So it's like a story. It's not just me telling you what happened. Like the reader is experiencing it with me as I go through it. Right. And so, you know, learning how to write and then just, you know, exposing my innermost thoughts, my feelings. And that's very difficult because now all these things that I've kind of kept locked up in here and locked up here is now on paper and it's out there for the world to judge. And so that's a little difficult. And then probably the hardest chapter of the book to write is a chapter called The Call. And the reason why is because that is the very first conversation that I have with my brother. And just reliving that experience was incredibly difficult. And there were times where I would just kind of like break down and cry. And then I'm like, okay, okay. And then, you know, start writing again. And then I break down again, <laughs> you know, so. Were these feelings positive feelings of finding them or was they negative feelings? I would assume maybe positive. There weren't any negative feelings. It was all positive, but it was just reliving that raw emotion. Like it's something that I never fathomed would ever happen in my life. And now all of a sudden I'm talking to a relative on my father's side. You know, this father that I never knew if he knew I existed. I'm actually like talking to a relative of, you know, and it was just mind blowing. And I totally didn't expect it. You know, I'm taking this DNA test for completely different reasons, not to find my dad. And so now that I found him, she's like, what? <laughs> so it's crazy. That makes a lot of sense. So out of curiosity, would you be okay if we share, maybe do you have a store link for your book or do you want people to know your messenger or so they can contact you about the book or? Absolutely. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Lisa Quates. And that's at L-I-S-A-Q-U-A-I-T-E-S. So you can find me there. I'm on Facebook as Lee Quates, L-I Quates, Q-U-A-I-T-E-S. The book has a website, faithandfavorbook.com is on there. And you can also purchase the book from Amazon 
or you can purchase it from Faith and Vapor's website as well. So you actually self-publish. So you didn't hire a publisher to like edit the book or, or did you actually have somebody read it or how was that process? Yeah, it was quite the process. After my first rough draft of it, I had some beta readers, which are readers that will read the whole manuscript and kind of give you feedback. So they had 11 questions that they needed to answer for me, which helped me shape the book for a bigger audience. And so that was super helpful. And then I did have an editor and a proofreader. There were some things that I did myself that many authors don't. Like, for example, the book layout. A lot of authors will have someone else do the book layout, actually how it looks on the pages. But I did all that myself. And then I self-published it through Amazon. And, you know, all of that was a learning experience. But I am glad that I did it. Do you plan continuing to write more or was this just uh, the one deal? Or No, I started a publishing company, summersolsticepublishing.com. So if you go to faithandfavoritebook.com, it will redirect you to Summer Solstice Publishing. And it's the same. I think what I would like to do is write children's books. And so I definitely don't plan on writing another memoir. <laughs> Did you actually retire from your IT job then and you're you a full a publisher or maybe doing both still? Or? I probably will not retire from my IT job for a while. So the publishing would be just kind of like a side hustle for a while. But yeah, I would certainly be open to helping other authors through the process. Okay, I think we could probably wrap it up here. Is there anything that you'd like to address or anything that we missed? Yeah, I think you guys have asked some really, really good questions. And I thank you for allowing me to share my story with others. We really appreciate it because I know it sounds like you're a very private individual, but I really think talking it out doesn't just help yourself, but I think it helps a lot of people. And you're not the only Blasian, and I'm sure they'd probably really relate to this. And you have a really interesting story. I'm really happy that you were able to reunite with one of your parents. I feel like that really helps one state of mind, regardless whether you had a good adoption story or not. So I think that's really a huge blessing, and I'm really glad to have uh, come across you. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the invite, and thank you guys for what you're doing in the community and helping to give space for other adoptees to share their stories, because you never really know who you're going to help with your own testimony. So thank you guys for what you do. One last comment. Have you ever tried to do a private investigator to help you find your birth mom or you never considered it? Or I know there was another cat that tried, I don't know, her connection at all and how she got it or their fee, but she did try it that way. Have you ever considered that? Yeah, so actually I have been in contact with a private investigator that lives in Korea. But, you know, the problem is if I don't have a name or a birth date, it's very, very difficult. Even even with a picture, huh? Yes. Yes, it's very difficult. Well, we hope someday maybe you can find your mom and maybe we could keep in touch. And I think we could end it here. We really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys again. And I appreciate all that you guys are doing. Right, thank you. Thanks.